We'll go ahead and have a seat. Welcome to Village Church. If this is your first time here, my name's Steve, one of the pastors here at Village Church. And as always, I'm thankful and grateful to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 27. We're going to be starting in verse 45 this morning. You know, when you talk about the death of Jesus, it's a weighty thing. The resurrection, of course, is the climax of the gospel. That is Christ the victorious, where he wins victory over sin and death for us. But when you talk about things like the death of Christ, it is more difficult to see the victory through the cross. Here is what we must understand about that, though, is that without the death of Christ, there would be no resurrection. The old saying goes that everybody wants a resurrection, but nobody wants to die. The victory of Christ, though, is seen still through His death as we see Christ the vicarious, that He is our vicarious substitute on the cross taking our place, and that in death, He is clearly our substitute in satisfying the penalty for sin. Do you know the death of Christ satisfies the wrath of God against our sin against Him? And there's no way then to overstate the importance of the death of Christ. There's no way to make too much of how meaningful the death of Jesus is. And there's no way to overstate then the depth of God's love that is seen on the cross as Jesus gave up His life in order to save ours, in order to forgive us of our sin. You can't look at that and see that you are redeemed from the wrath of God at great cost to Jesus on the cross and then not look at it and say, this is vital to the very gospel because without this, there is no Easter. There is no celebration. There's no path to showing the unconquerable victory of Jesus Christ over sin and death without that very death of Christ Because for that victory, He had to pay the penalty so that we could be saved through faith. Friends, there is no forgiveness of sin without first having the penalty for that sin paid. Because there must be justice for sin. God cannot and could not just overlook our sin. Just pretend as though it never happened and still be a just God because even now, the very image of God inside of us when we see sin, evil, injustice in this world, something wells up within us that cries out for justice. So if it was not for the justice of God, there would just be chaos. God is not and cannot be arbitrary about our sin. We defied Him. Therefore, justice is demanded. What I hope this morning that you see through the narrative of Christ's death is how God upheld His justice, upheld His love to be gracious to sinners like you and me. And the weight of the death of Jesus reveals the love of God for sinners. And so I want to begin reading in verse 45 this morning. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling on Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. 
Number one this morning, understand that on the cross, sin was judged once for all. Sin was judged once for all. Scripture in all of its theology for us and all that it tells us about the justice and law of God, the commands that He's given us as well as the redemption that is wrought for us through Jesus Christ reveals very clearly that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Therefore, sin is a bloody ordeal. We downplay it in order to feel better about ourselves We find identities in this life in order to explain away why we do the things that we do, why we are sinners. We victimize ourselves to avoid responsibility. We find someone else to blame. We always find a villain to paint ourselves as heroes through in order to say, my sin is not the biggest problem of my life. Other people's sin is a greater problem for me. And we excuse and we pacify and we pretend as though it is not justice for my sin because I am not as bad as someone else nor am I as guilty as I could be. But you need to realize it is your sin. Personalize it. You have disobeyed God. You have sinned against Him. You have found satisfaction in something or someone other than God. It is you that has not worshiped God and has sought to worship His creation, even if you, through your giant ego, seek to worship yourself. It is you that sent Jesus Christ to that cross. It is for your sin that He was on that cross, that He was forsaken by the Father, that He became the curse of sin on display for everyone. It's you. For no one else has done that to you. You have done that yourself. And if you ever want hope of redemption, you must own it and say, it is for my sin that He went to that cross. When we sin, it causes pain. The pain that you have in this life is because of sin. And that's yours. You must own it. Life is difficult. Life is often referred to as suffering because of our sin. Sin is never without consequences. There is no victimless sin. The Scripture teaches us is from the very beginning. When we first see in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve disobey God and their innocence is completely lost in their fall to sin. They realize that they are naked. Their innocence is lost and they look for clothing and it was insufficient to cover their shame. And so what does God do? He shows them the depravity of their sin by requiring a sacrifice so they could be covered by the pelt of the animal. The animal felt like a victim on that day. If he could speak, it would be like, what did I do? It wasn't what he did. It was what we did. It was our sin. And God, from the very outset of sin in this world, He says, your sin must be covered. You must see the wage of sin is always death. 
a sacrifice needed to clothe them. Then in Genesis 3.15, when they are being held accountable by God Himself, speaking of the enmity that would exist between humanity and the satanic serpent, we see the first prophecy of the gospel. God looks to them and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In the Hebrew, the verb used isn't one in which it is a slight bruise given in the way that we often look at bruising of our bodies. The verb there is one of a sharp blow. It is one of a crushing compression. The snake crawling on its belly being cursed to do that in creation prevents a head wound, but it does not mean it is any more slight. As you know, there are venomous snakes that if they strike the heel, they have the venom to kill you with it. But note what it says about the stature of a human being. The serpent can bring a crushing blow to the heel, but the heel of man can bring a crushing blow to the head of the serpent. The strike that Christ endured on the cross was no slight bruise. Isaiah himself wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was crushed for our iniquities. But because Satan is not as smart as God... He did not realize that in striking the heel of the Savior, God would through it crush His very head by redeeming humanity. So from the outset of Scripture, we see pictures of the Gospel. And Genesis 3.15 began a very bloody road to redemption. Shadows and figures, allusions all through the Old Testament... Figures of redemption stretching over a 1,500-year period. There's no book like the Scriptures. Hebrews 9.22 states what the Old Testament makes clear, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There can be no forgiveness of sins. Because this is the pain of sin. That picture, according to Leviticus Bloody sacrifice after bloody sacrifice throughout the temple system of the Old Testament represents the life that God has designed blood to give us internally. Therefore, when it is on the outside, it represents blood, the very life that you have leaving the body. And that is the natural revelation of why you can bleed to death. God says that is the only fitting picture of the consequence and the cost of your sin. And so throughout the temple, sacrifice after sacrifice, every year, animal after animal, blood spread everywhere, painted here, sprinkled there, spread behind the ear, spread on the toe. It is a bloodbath and it should nauseate you and that's the design. That's not the flaw of the Old Testament system. That's the feature is because it shows you the cost. It shows you the consequence. It shows you the grotesque and filthy level of your sin in the eyes of a very holy God. 
This is the judgment for our sin. And this is what Jesus was doing on the cross for us. A few miracles happened the day that Jesus died. We often look over them, but an obviously fitting one is that God made it as dark as night in the middle of the day, the sixth hour being noon, the ninth hour being 3 p.m. The text doesn't specifically tell us how dark it was. It just says darkness was spread. I don't know if it was over the whole world. I don't know if it was limited to that area where Golgotha was, where the cross happened, but it just describes it as it was darkness. I don't know if the sun was reflecting off of the moon. I don't know. But all I can say is this is a fitting picture of your status as being dead in your sin. The scripture calls evil the darkness and says it must be exposed by light. But as Christ was giving his life on that cross, the father said, see the judgment for your sin. And they were stricken in darkness could not see right in front of them in the middle of the day. God says, this is the condition of sin. This is what Christ is enduring for you in this moment. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting David from Psalm 22.1, a prophecy of this moment. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus was the only just sacrifice. Only God can judge sin. Therefore, only God himself bringing judgment onto himself can take that judgment off of our shoulders. And the judge of all sin came and became the judgment by taking it on to himself. This was and is the only hope that sinners can have. That you must hope that the judge of all things will be merciful and gracious to forgive you. And in that moment of Christ on the cross, forsaken by the Father, every ounce of grace and every ounce of mercy is removed from the one to whom we must plead for grace and mercy. The eternal, perfect community and relationship that the Godhead, the three-in-one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had timelessly enjoyed. In that moment, the Father turns His back on the Son because He cannot and will not look on to sin And Jesus reacts and says, why have you forsaken me? The perfect son of God experiencing the condemnation of sin in a moment for my sin and your sin. The relationship within the Godhead himself is changed in that moment. God could not pass over your sin and sweep it under the rug Jesus came to bring justice and therefore endured the tidal wave, the tsunami of wrath that you and I deserve to drink from for all eternity. Sin is chaos. 
And Jesus endured that chaos as a substitute on that day. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11, describes it by connecting it to the Old Testament, saying, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He's saying it was never the blood of bulls and goats that brought forgiveness for us. These were all pointing to the day where God the Son would be forsaken by the Father. He is both the high priest and the sacrifice entering into the holy of holies to both offer and be the perfect sacrifice through his own flesh, through his own blood, so that there would never need to be another sacrifice for sin because there's not going to be a better high priest than Jesus Christ. There can never be a greater offering than the blood of God the Son who became flesh, entered into His very creation. And in that moment, as I said last week, He became the very personification of sin being crushed by the wrath of the Father for you. This is no light penalty. This is no light justice. This is devastating consequences of sin for you and for me. I put him there. He is literally the only one who can offer a perfect substitutionary atonement for my sin. It's through his blood. And when he yielded his life in verse 50, He paid our sin once for all time. He was judged for my sin. Reread verse 50. And he cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And a fascinating series of events unfolds. But the most vital one for you and for me is in verse 51, number two this morning. On the cross, God made His presence available to all. To everyone. The penalty for sin has been fulfilled completely. It is sin that separates you from God. 
Do not discount the holiness of God in your life. God is so holy that sin cannot exist in his presence. He is so completely sanctified, which means that he is set apart for holiness. His holiness is and has always been perfectly maintained. And that causes a problem for us. It causes a problem for you and for me because I have sin. I was born with a nature that is corrupted by sin. I don't sin and therefore become a sinner. I am a sinner, therefore I sin. And scripture declares that the wage that is owed for my sin is the wage of death because sin cannot enter into his kingdom. Therefore, if I am sinful, I will be cast out of his presence. I will be cast out of his kingdom. I can never know what the presence of God is like because sin can never enter his kingdom. And scripture declares that eternal death of damnation is due. That's the payment. And I can never pay it off. To be a sinner is to not know the presence of God. It is only to know the deception and the pain and the suffering and the torment of sin. Verse 50 states that after the bystanders misunderstood Eli or Eli to mean Elijah, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. And thankfully, we have more gospel accounts and where we know what he cried out. He cried out two things. First, John 19.30 records that the first part of what Jesus cried out was, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is finished? His mission. The purpose for which he was born. Jesus came with a mission to pay the penalty for sin so that the barrier of sin between God and man could be removed. And Jesus completed that mission. In Leviticus 16, starting in verse 21, we see this fascinating picture that isn't often talked about. It's the scapegoat, the Azazel where on the day of atonement, two goats would be presented to the high priest. One would be killed and one would be driven out of the camp. On that day, the high priest would put his hands on the one that was chosen to be driven out of the camp. And then that represented the imputation of sin onto that goat and the expiation of sin from you and from me. And it's placed onto the scapegoat, the one who would take the blame. And then that goat is driven out of Israel, is driven out of the camp, is driven into the wilderness. Never again is that goat to be allowed into the camp. And that goat will now be exiled into the wilderness away from the presence of God for the remainder of its days. And Jesus became that scapegoat. R.C. Sproul explains in the curse motif of the atonement that Christ was driven away from the Jews into the camp of the Gentiles. 
He was driven, exiled from his people, falling under execution from the Romans. On that cross, Christ is the scapegoat. My sin expiated from me and imputed on to him in that moment. And he is forsaken by the Father. The presence of God removed miraculously from God the Son in that moment. In antiquity, there is evidence that receipts of payment would be to tell. That's what would be written on the receipt. And Jesus' statement here is to tell us die. That has led many to offer a potential translation of to tell us die, it is finished, to paid in full. What was paid? The full penalty for my sin. The full penalty for sin that is owed to God. It can also be translated to complete, to become entirely accomplished. These are all good translations that add up to the same thing. No more Payment or work is ever needed to satisfy the wrath of God for my sin. He fully completed the mission of redemption by paying the penalty that I owe to God. Therefore, the necessary separation between God and man could be vanquished. And reconciliation could take place. But that begs a question that's vital in our day. To whom was that penalty of redemption owed? Luke 23, 46 records further that the final words out of the mouth of Christ were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit And having breathed, excuse me, having said that, he breathed his last. There is a heresy that Jesus paid a debt to Satan for our sin. And let me be clear, this is a damnable heresy. And so there's the potential that you have heard that teaching at some point and you haven't heard the true teaching of Scripture on that point, and so you just accepted that it is true. Well, no longer is your ignorance allowed. <laughs> I cannot speak strongly enough against it. This is a damnable heresy. Why would a penalty be owed to Satan? He loves sin. He is evil. Therefore, no debt for sin is owed to him because no one has ever sinned against him. More than that, he owes a debt to God that will be paid. Revelation tells us that there is coming a day where he will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Therefore, no one is paying him for anything until he will pay for all eternity. Satan would love nothing more than for me to remain dead in my sin so that I can suffer with him. That is why it is important that you look at the words of Jesus where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The debt was owed to God was paid to God. And Jesus says, it's been paid. My mission's done. I'm coming home. There's another heresy 
And on the day of Jesus' death, he went to hell. Again, damnable heresy. Don't believe it. He didn't. He didn't look to the thief, as we talked about last Sunday, and say, after we make one stop, you'll be with me in paradise. <laughs> no. Jesus doesn't say, it's sort of finished, but I got to go to hell for a minute. No, he says, it's done. Penalty paid. He didn't go to hell. He went to paradise and he took a sinner with him that day. Understand that the scripture is clear. This is about our relationship with God. The penalty is owed to him. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The presence of God is available to you right now. At any minute, there's no barrier between me and God. Because I have faith in Jesus, God says, come on in. Let's chat. Let's talk. At any moment, I can pray to God and I'm in his presence. A.W. Tozer writes that many times through prayer, we seek to kind of conjure up the presence of God in our lives. Just, that's a wrong way to think about prayer. Prayer is realizing the presence of God. He's already here. If you have faith in Jesus, you just need to, in a moment, say, Father, and realize you are in His presence. That is what Jesus purchased for you on the cross. He made a payment to the Father so that you could go to Him. How do I know that? Because of another miracle that happened that day. Because the curtain was torn from top to bottom. There are many different separating barriers inside of the temple. It's fascinating in our inclusive time, we seek to feel inclusive about our sin, but the Old Testament wants us to feel very excluded because of our sin. God created a tabernacle for Israel in which it was harder and harder and more restricted to get closer and closer to the presence of God. First, there is the barrier of the Gentiles called Solomon's portico in the second temple period where they had a social life where Gentiles that were converted could come into Solomon's portico, but they could not go into the place to worship. Only Jews could enter into the place of worship. A separation. Then there was another barrier where they could not go into the holy place because only priests can go into the holy place to offer sacrifices in perpetuity all year long. And then there is another separation into the holy of holies and only one man can go into the holy of holies only one day a year. And so there is one part of the temple where as we think about it, there are 364 days a year where no one can go into that place because it represents the presence of God and only the high priest for a small period, one day a year, could enter into it through a purification ritual in which his only purpose for going in there is to offer a very bloody sacrifice for the sins of the nation of Israel once a day a year on the day of atonement. And on that day when Christ was crucified on the cross for my sin, the veil into the Holy of Holies was torn into, not by the hands of a human being because it's about 30 feet tall, 30 feet wide. You can only imagine how thick the curtain had to be to be that type of barrier. God himself tore it from top to bottom and unleashed the presence of God to a sick, 
sinful, dying world. That is what the death of Christ bought for you and for me. Hebrews 10 further speaks, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence. I love that word. We have confidence. We don't trepidly go into the presence of God like a scared little boy. No, I enter the presence of God like a man of God. Confident that that is where I belong. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, no Gentile Jew divide. If you have faith in Jesus, come on in. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us, the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. The presence of God is open to all who believe in Jesus. Not because I am so faithful. I think that's what you misunderstand. When you find yourself in sin, Satan would deceive you to run from the presence of God. But you do not go into the presence of God because you are so worthy to be there. This text is clear. You go to the presence of God with confidence, with sureness, because Jesus is faithful to save. Because He who promised is faithful. i got to be honest with you. I'm not nor will I ever depend on any of your promises for my faith in Jesus Christ. Nor should you depend on mine. Because Jesus made a promise. And Jesus is faithful. Sinner, when you find yourself unfaithful, that is when you run to the presence of God because He is faithful to forgive you of your sins. He has made it so that I can enter the presence of God with confidence. But that's only sort of good news. Prayer is great. I'm thankful for every moment that I can spend in the presence of God. My life is not shaped by the things that I accomplish, the things that I gain. My life is shaped by my time with God. But even better than prayer is the fact that on the day that I die, I am not barred from the presence of God. Rather, just as Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I hope that I am lucid enough on the day that I die, to look at everyone around me and cry out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The good news of Jesus Christ is not limited to this physical life. The good news of Jesus Christ means I face death with confidence that I will be with Him. 
Reread verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who'd fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's crazy. But it happened. Friends, once you believe that God can make it dark, that Jesus, God the Son, can become a human being, live a perfect life, die a sinner's death, say paid in full, go into the presence of the Father, take a filthy thief with Him. Once you believe that the Holy of Holies and the curtain into it is torn in two by the hand of God Himself, when you start bringing in earthquakes and the dead raisin, you're like, that seems reasonable given all the other facts that I'm reading about right here. Yeah, it happened. It's fitting, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city, appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with Him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Number three this morning, through the cross, real freedom can be known by all. There is this amazing thing that happens when we get to verse 54. There is a simple beauty to faith in Jesus. It's utterly amazing. Matthew records that dead believers were raised, that an earthquake took place, and I just told you, that happened. This is an allegory. But also, kids, this isn't the walking dead. They're not reanimated corpses. This is like Lazarus. They were literally vivified. That's a word that means made alive. And so just like Lazarus raised from the dead, a human being, living, breathing, blood pumping, talking to family members, not stinking anymore, not fading away, but full of life again. They were raised from the dead in this period. Now, the only problem with being raised from the dead is that you got to do it again. And I think that would be unpleasant. But what a fitting miracle. Jesus Christ paying the penalty for sin, paying the penalty for death, giving the ultimate wage, the greatest enemy that is death that we have, and God saying, I will show you how remarkable this day is. Saints, that means people who were believers, people who were followers of God, people who were faith, who had died. I don't know when they had died, but they were raised from the dead and they went home and everybody that had been in their funeral said, we got to do that again someday they went home Jesus went home what other fitting reality could there be to show the pacified wrath of God and the historic and eternal consequences other than at the moment of Christ's death the earth begins to shake what better analogies are there they aren't just analogies They are miracles meant to teach us of the life-altering realities of that day. And it is a fitting picture because it represents the hope of what Jesus has accomplished. The world is shaking. The dead are raised. Sinners are becoming whole. But the greatest miracle of that day is the faith of that centurion. 
It's an amazing thing. Do you think he woke up that morning being tasked with keeping watch to make sure no funny business happens with the cross, to make sure that everybody in that section that was hanging on a cross died by the end of the day so that they would not be on the cross during the Sabbath, surrounded by other godless soldiers tasked with holding down the Jewish peoples, looking to Jesus, seeing everything that happened, hearing the last statements that Jesus made in His life, and in that moment... This Gentile says, I think we got this one wrong. (laughs) Truly, he was the son of God. That soldier represents everything that is unbelievable, miraculous, life-changing, eternity-altering, and simply beautiful about faith in Jesus Christ. In a moment... You can go from sinner condemned to saint alive. Faith is nothing short of a miracle when you consider the barriers of sin that all of us have. It is finished. This is a hopeful phrase to carry around. Romans 6.23 is a short, famous, but vital verse for us to understand. Wages of sin is death. There is and always will be a cost to sin. That cost does not go unpaid, and it never will. Sin takes you further than you ever planned to go, keeps you there longer than you ever wanted to stay, and requires a payment larger than you ever imagined you would have to pay. The wages of sin is death. That is the total story of someone without faith in Jesus Christ. Regardless of what you accomplish in this world, regardless of what you think you have gained, without Jesus Christ, the wages of sin is death, is what What will sum up your entire existence on your own? That is the direction you will go for all eternity. But God has a greater story to tell in your life. He has a greater glory to give you. He has a wonderful gift to redeem you with. I believe, because I learned that old Romans road a long time ago, that the greatest phrase in the entirety of Scripture, the gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is one qualifying condition. There is one thing that you must know is that the gift comes through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus did the work. Because Jesus has earned the right. Jesus gave His life on the cross. He has done it all. And He says, believe. He says, trust me. The gift that He gives in return of that is His life and His eternity. Trust Him. 
because Jesus has paid it all. A few application points. First, understand that sin must be judged. It must be judged. This isn't something you will skirt. This isn't something that you will get around. It must be judged. Secondly, consider the significance of the miracles on the cross. They were not just arbitrary happenstances for dramatic effect. (laughs) Every one of them teaches us something about sin and redemption. Consider them. Thirdly, believe that Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin because no one else can and no one else will. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Fourthly, if you're a follower of Jesus, cherish the gift of life at the cost of Christ. This is no small thing. This is life. This is death. God the Son is calling you to follow Him and Him alone because He's the only one that can give you the hope for eternity.